Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. I think most men feel like they shouldn't have to like cross the street, you know, that they're, they're a good guy. So therefore like, what's the problem? And it's like, you know, as long as I live in a world where there's disproportionate, you know, violence against women, like I should cross the street. Why should I make her uncomfortable? So I don't have to feel uncomfortable, you know, about the world we live in. Hey, I'm Natalie Dronovac and welcome to another episode of The Modern Women, a show that seeks to share the stories and experiences of women that may be out of our line of sight. In today's episode, I'm doing things a little differently, and I got the pleasure to talk with Thomas Page McBee, all the way from New York City. Thomas is a journalist, author, and the first transgender man to box in Madison Square Garden, which he details in his book, Amateur, a true story about what makes a man. To be completely upfront, before interviewing Thomas, I was extremely naive about the trans experience, and I sought to have this conversation to help us all better understand each other. I find Thomas has a great skill in being able to communicate and educate on complex issues, and I hope you'll get as much out of this episode and conversation as I did. His views on toxic masculinity, sexism, and his ability to now be heard as he advocates for women's rights are provocative and illuminating. So my little bit of a rapid fire so we can learn some quirky facts about you. Uh, What would be the one word your friends would use to describe you? The one word? I'm immediately going to astrology for some reason. Oh, really? (laughs) Yes. Is that because you're into horoscopes? I'm into horoscopes and I tend to be, I have a very queer like friend community because I've been queer my entire life. So we're all into horoscopes. So um, I'm a Pisces. I feel like they might immediately use that as a summary of my general characteristics. Okay. (laughs) All right. I'm going to check it out afterwards. Uh, (laughs) Yes. What profession would you love to try other than your own? Like I've always thought, wouldn't it be great if I was a Formula One driver? Oh, you know what? I try every profession I want to try. Actually, I just came back from being a TV writer. Uh, Prior to that, I've been a journalist. I've been a teacher. I've been a, you know, uh, a counselor. Um, So I, yeah, I feel like there's not actually, like if I really want to try something, I tend to just do it. (laughs) I love that though. So many people hold themselves back. Um, What's been the one book that's had the greatest impact on you? Oh, that's tough. I would have to say the greatest impact I would have to say was Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. And I know it's a surprising choice, but it's because um, my mom and I used to read that book when I was little. Like it was like uh, every night before bed, um, we went through a whole phase of probably over a year where we like she read the book to me and it was just such a special experience and then she called me pip which is the name of the main character um all throughout my childhood and 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 early adulthood so it just feels like a special memory of reading with my mom um and the the story itself you know is an interesting story but really that experience of reading as a connection was really powerful and profound oh i love that Um, and what do you wish you had have known when you started out 
just in terms of career, everything, or can be anything. When I start out with my career, yeah. Or um, I, I think that um, I mean I've learned so much about gender and gender dynamics at work, and and that I think is such a important mediating part of my life on many levels. So it's hard not to think of it that way. But I guess to take a step back from that explicitly, I think there's so many ways. Um, I'll think I'll talk about work. I think there's so many ways that you know outside and external forces influence you know how we see ourselves in the world and how we see ourselves in contexts like work and it's really hard to hear the truth of what you actually believe and want and think versus what you're being told to believe and want and think and you know that's capitalism and that's uh gender dynamics that's everything so i think learning to differentiate my own voice from the voice of you know the cacophony of the world <laughs> is something that it's not like i I don't think you, you can know that off the bat, but I, I wish I, no, I don't even, I, I don't wish I'd figured it out sooner. I think you can only figure that out as you figure it out, but it's something that if there was some magic pill you could take from the beginning and always know just truly what you believe, yeah. <laughs> that would be a cool thing. <laughs> it's, it's actually been something that as I've been reading your work, I have consistently, I guess, self-referenced and thought, well, what do I think of this? Or large parts of it, I was like, I've never even thought about that or I've never questioned yeah. myself around that. And so yeah. I really have loved the challenge in trying to understand. Um, and like I said earlier, it's really something and the reason I wanted to have this conversation with you because um, the reason you first caught my attention was when uh, Matt McGorry, the actor, shared a photo of your book, which is yeah. absolutely outstanding. I loved it. Um, Amateur, yeah. A True Story, What Makes a Man. And of course, I dove down the rabbit hole and then I saw and was struck by a headline um, from a New York Times article. My voice got deeper. Suddenly people listened. My feminist mother taught me to speak up. Now, as a trans man, I'm trying to make space for women to be heard. And for me, I had never heard such a unique perspective um, and something I'd never thought about having, I guess, lived as both genders and then the ability of now as a man making space for women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, I always say like, I, you know, it's not like I had this I don't know what it's like to be sexually harassed. Like I was always a very, I was a very queer person. I was like very masculine of center and, and I came out when I was 14 years old. So my life until I was 30 was a very, you know, butch experience of like being female, which is different in my, you know, understanding of, of that in the sense that I, I didn't, um, I didn't experience some very key things that I think a lot of women do experience like mm -hmm. sexual harassment. What do you mean in terms of, um, could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, like I, I've literally never been sexually harassed. I've never been catcalled. I've never, like for me personally, that never happened. And I think part of that was my gender presentation wasn't attracting that attention from men. So I, I never experienced that. But many things that women experience, I, I have experienced, like, you know, being dismissed easily, you know, and out of hand, like not being taken seriously. Um, I also, of course, have had complicated, the complicated experience of homophobia instead of um, always sexism, but like being a very visibly queer person was a big part of my life for a very long time. And so that was like a big part of how I negotiated the world and work. And, um, and so, yeah, like, I think for me, when I transitioned medically, when I was 30 years old, I thought that I knew what it was like to be masculine because I'd been masculine for so long. You know, I, I don't think I anticipated what it would be like for the world to see me 
the way I saw myself. And the biggest changes for me were in two big buckets. One was um, privilege, which is what we're talking about, like the sudden, the very sudden experience of literally being able to, like in that New York Times article, I talk about speaking up in a meeting six months into my transition and having everyone get silent. And it was just like shocking. Like I never had people be silent before when I spoke. And even that realization was really troubling. Um, so those sorts of privileges like like were happening in this like to me, like even though I wasn't asking for them. And so I was really aware of that. And then there was also the other side of it, which is the um, what sociologists call the man box. And so there were many ways that sort of unconsciously the world around me was pressuring me um, to perform my life emotionally and otherwise in this very like restrictive way. And those two things together were the things I was sort of hyper aware of and spent a lot of time trying to figure out how do I navigate this and also how do I tell other people that this is happening, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's so interesting around the privileges when it comes to being a man, because I think as I've interviewed and spoken with like men and women around this whole topic, it's been so interesting to hear different people's perspective on it. And for me personally, um, I've never worked in a, a a typical corporate environment. And so I've never necessarily or I've kind of, I questioned myself as I was reading your articles, thinking to myself, well, has this happened to me? Or how come it hasn't happened to me? And then a friend of mine was like, where have you been? What bubble have you been in to not have the patriarchy just, you know, looming down on you? Um, Uh But when it comes to understanding the privileges that you have experienced, what would you say have been kind of the most stark ones outside of like being heard, I guess it's not even just about being heard. Maybe when you compare that for yourself, you're kind of a bit like, why aren't, why wasn't I? And now I am like, I mean, I know that as you speak about toxic masculinity and masculinity itself, what have you just been so blown away by in realizing in how society is constructs? I think that, you know, pretty much in terms of just very concrete things, the first few months of my transition are a really great places to, to, to name this from because I think it was just so radically obvious. Like it's like I would be in my apartment and feel just awesome and aligned in my body and great and feeling like finally things sort of make sense to me uh, about about myself. But then it's like I would leave my apartment and just as soon as I left my apartment, everything was different. Like the way the world treated me. So everything from, um, you know, like I said, like if I went to work, you know, I would be listened to more, I would be taken more seriously. That's a hard thing to quantify. And, you know, again, like I've I've now done reporting on it. So I know that this is true. Like, for example, um, there's some great research out of Stanford around like um, quantifying uh, uh, feedback and how women get more vague praise, whereas men get more concrete feedback. And if you think about like what that might do for your career, like if you have really concrete feedback that helps you understand how to progress versus vague praise that doesn't give you any direction, you know, those sorts of things add up and, and are, there's a cumulative effect, you know, around what that does for people. And, and all of this is unconscious, you know? So I felt like I was suddenly given almost like the kings, the keys to the kingdom kind of thing where it's like, Oh, you know, and again, it was my 30s. So I was also just reaching an age of maturity that either way, I think I would have made career advancements for sure. But it wasn't that exactly. It was that people took me seriously and I easily was able to negotiate raises. Like I I started hardballing raises. Did you feel more confident to negotiate the raises or was it more around the fact that you were more respected? It was a feedback loop. It was like I was more respected for doing nothing, and therefore I was more confident 
because I felt respected. I wasn't more respected. Um, I feel like the important thing is like, you know, you can't separate like environment from, you know, like you can't separate these things. Like I can't say, well, here's the exact thing that happened at this time, but it was such a sudden shift in how people treated me. Mm-hmm. And it was clearly, and really importantly, it was so, un- it was clearly so unconscious. It's not like, I don't think anybody was masterminding. Like these are people who were like good people in my life, like my coworkers, my friends, my, you know, the, like my, my family even, like there was just a shift in how I was treated that was so pervasive and for better and for worse. And I, um, and I really don't think anyone was conscious of it. And that was kind of what was so startling about it, including myself, just to be fair to everyone in my life. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I wasn't always conscious of it. Yeah. Cause I actually, in your book, you mentioned about how, um, you know, your sister was talking about how she did boxing and how you kind of were a bit flippant with her or how you noticed yourself, how you would speak over the women, but not necessarily the men. And so, I mean, what for you does that kind of reference in terms of making you understand society around like, women can be ignored, men should be heard. Yeah. Well, I mean, sorry, let me, let me just say one more thing before I move on to that, just because I want to say, answer your question fully. And the other, you said, what, what did I notice? And the other thing was safety. Like I was suddenly safe in the world. That is a whole topic that when you, yeah. <laughs> I really want to get into, but um, yeah. I'd love around the, uh, sorry, what I had just previously asked. Yeah. yeah. So, so being, yeah, like, um, so it took me a long time to really understand that I was being listened to. I mean, I, I had moments, but so many things were happening in my life physically and emotionally and everything else that, that sort of really drilling down into what was going on took some time. I, I did notice that people seemed to be listening to me more. I did notice that the world was treating me differently, but just to, you know, I also was literally going through a complete identity change. And so, you know, and my physical change. So it was hard to sort of put my finger on exactly what was happening for a while and eventually i started leaning into like my reporting background to start you know telling stories and and digging deeper and actually in my book when this whole topic comes up it comes up around the idea um the book is a series of questions that i asked that were meant to be asked just totally open-heartedly and i I really committed to answering asking and answering even really embarrassing questions that came out yeah it's a great read (laughs) thank you but one question was you know, I was learning to box and I was, um, it, my sparring partner in the beginning was a woman who was much more experienced than me. And it was a little unusual to have a, a sparring partner that was a woman as a man, but, um, but it made sense. Like she really had a lot of training and, um, but the optics of it made me incredibly uncomfortable because we were in this boxing gym and I felt, you know, like, I felt like I'd internalized this idea that I should, I, not just that I shouldn't hit a woman, which that makes sense, but this was a consensual situation and she was totally qualified. And I think what it really was, was I didn't want to be beaten by a woman in front of all these men. Gotcha. And so that was the first time I really had to look at myself and, and ask like, you know, am I sexist? Me, the former, you know, the queer person, the, the one raised by a mom who was a physicist and who like broke glass ceilings and who was in the queer community for 16 years before my transition and was a riot girl. And like, I just couldn't believe that I was having these sexist thoughts, but of course I was. I mean, we all internalize sexism. And mm-hmm. so that moment with my sister that you're referring to, um, like that was a moment actually where my, my, my partner was the one who pointed out that I was talking with my brother and I was with my sister and we were talking about physical stuff. And, you know, my brother's a really physically active guy. And so we were having, he was asking me about training for this fight. And my sister who also had learned to box way before me was like trying to be part of the conversation and like we just talked right over her like she wasn't even there and my my wife pointed out later like what 
you know, did you realize this happened? And I didn't even notice. And so yeah. there's a there's a lot about in the book me really interrogating myself, but also speaking to people like, you know, people who really study this, like how, like, what is this about? I mean, obviously it's about sexism, but like how often is this, you know, something that's genuinely happening in workplaces and in, in, in environments where men and women are together, where we've just been trained and conditioned to like, you know, women are conditioned to be quiet when a man is talking, like that is a thing that's happening, you know? So like a lot of what, a lot of what I noticed happens, you know, for me is like, I might be excited to be participating in a conversation. I might start talking and in my former conditioning, that was like, you know, normal. Like I think sometimes when women get together, they, they all sort of talk at the same time and it's, it's okay. And no, nobody feels, um, that <laughs> someone's trying chat. to like, yeah. Uh, but, but that's not what it means anymore for me when I do that. So if I talk and women are talking, uniformly they will be quiet like it's just like everyone's silenced immediately so that sort of thing and and noticing that noticing that i'm more likely to talk over my sister than my brother that's something i don't even know where i got that it's just a cultural condition so i had to like un unlearn that walking know? walking i guess around now in society and then do you see do you often see other men do it like you know now that because i think one of the cool things that i from reading your story around was how as you became socialized at 30, you had that cognitive awareness. So do you yeah. now see it so much more often uh, with other men when you're, you know, either at work or just out socially? Yeah. But, but just to be fair to everyone involved, I didn't see it in myself even totally at first. Like I, I kind of saw it. I saw moments where I thought this is strange and, and oh, like some things I caught from the very beginning, but some things it took, like even I had to be I had to learn like that I was doing something. I had to start paying a lot closer attention to my own behavior and realize that I unconsciously, you know, learned something that I didn't even believe in. It didn't line up with my values, but I was still behaving in that way because, because it was expected of me, because it was rewarded, you know, by other people unconsciously. So making that unconscious behavior conscious has been a big part of what I've been doing. And I think when I see it in other people, I, I truly believe almost always it's unconscious on everyone's part. I don't think most people are saying, I'm going to go to work and be sexist today. Um, but I do think that without any awareness, you don't unlearn um, those behaviors. And of course, the same thing goes for racism. And this is all across the board, the way we enculture uh, systems of power, you know, that's, that's how it works. Yeah, you just think it's normal. <laughs> yeah, you're like, what's the big deal? Right. It's like the status quo and it's hard to see it. Um, have you noticed, or I guess, what do you now do if you notice yourself doing it towards women? Uh, well, if, if I interrupt someone, I say, sorry, I immediately stop talking. I'm very sensitive to interrupting specifically because I think that's something I could really see. Like, I, you know, what I ended up doing is um, after, after I asked my, myself, am I sexist? I, I tried to make it like an inquiry and I, you know, just recorded my behavior for a week and noticed like who, whose emails did I respond to faster? Who did I interrupt more? Um, you know, who, who, like, who was I more likely to um, engage with? Like, just what am I doing that I'm not conscious of? And so making that conscious was very helpful because now I'm very aware of it. So I can kind of like, um, I can really be thoughtful and, and sort of hedge against it, you know? So certainly when it comes to interrupting, I, I try to be very aware. I say, sorry. Um, I ask for feedback uh, a lot from the people in my life in general, but women especially, and especially around work. And when I was running teams at my old job, um, I, uh, I ended up like talking to the, um, the folks at Stanford and implementing a bunch of strategies that they taught me around, like, you know, for example, 
always opening a meeting with a question so that everybody speaks mm. um, at the top of the meeting. And so I'm not the, the voice leading the, the focal meeting. point. Yeah. And that way everybody, you know, because people have, there's the social aspects of this, but there's also just different personalities. People have different levels of comfort and, you know, in terms of speaking up and we have like created work cultures where, you know, the most aggressive voice in the room gets heard the most. And that might not be the most smart person for every single like thing that we need to figure out. So the more you make room for like many, um, many points of like uh, interaction, like the better you off you are in terms of collaboration. So, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about creating emotionally and creatively safe environments. Um, and a lot of that does have to do with gender in a mixed gender workplace. Yeah. It's interesting because even when, like I've read a lot of your articles, but also when I follow you on Instagram and you'll put up a post and then there'll be something insightful and thoughtful. And I've noticed how I, I now question myself or my behaviors, or as you just said, when it came to emailing and responding, which did uh-huh. I do faster? Or, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I shared on a previous episode with a guest about how, um, it's a very simple analogy around, I grew up with a mother who mowed the lawn and a father who did the dishes. So it was uh-huh. never like boys roles, girls roles, etc. But now I've stopped and I go, Hmm, am I responding faster to a man or am I being dismissive here? Or I'm just questioning myself and becoming more aware. Um, because I think there's a part or, uh, something you've written previously around your, um, your environment also helps you understand your gender. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're so, I think in, in my book, my, my favorite fact is about testosterone, um, yeah. which is, yeah, which is something that a, a question I was very afraid to ask because I inject it every week. You know, I, I was very afraid to ask if testosterone makes me aggressive. Like does testosterone make any men aggressive in general? It's is that the it's, same way as how people flippantly say, oh, women and their hormones and they're being crazy? Right. Thing. Like yes. will it really okay. adversely change who I am? Right. For testosterone, I think people say, when they say boys will be boys or um, men are just like that, what they mean is there's something innate about a kind of traditional or hegemonic masculinity that has to do somehow with hormones. And so I was really, frankly, kind of worried because I had a, you know, I had a pretty violent stepfather growing up and I experienced violence at the hands of men. And part of what I think delayed my transition was that I was afraid that testosterone would make me somehow innately more aggressive. So but in my book, you know, my whole point was I'm going to ask every question that comes up for me. And that was a big question. So I got the chance to talk to Robert Sapolsky, who's a really famous um, Stanford neuroscientist. Uh, he lived with primates for a year. He's, he's really an incredible guy. Um, and I asked him about testosterone. And he said, you know, the biggest myth about testosterone is that it makes men aggressive. There's no aggression receptor in the brain, he said. What he said, though, that I thought was really powerful was um, they run economic games where the point of the game, the way you the way you win the game is by cooperating. And since testosterone does cause status seeking behavior in the, really? in the economic games. Yes. So in the economic games where winning is involves collaboration, men with the highest testosterone levels are the most collaborative people in the games. But when they give men a placebo and they tell them it's testosterone, those men act like jerks uh, in the same games. So when you're told this is testosterone, you behave as if testosterone makes you aggressive. Oh, so they perceive the idea of how it will make them feel. Yes. Right. So people, the idea that testosterone and masculinity are about aggression and dominance, which is a socialized, you know, way of thinking about it, um, is so dominant and intense that like people will change their behavior, you know, without even realizing. And, And I think that that gets to the heart of what 
you know, when we're talking about toxic masculinity, which is, you know, a bag of worms in terms of like, maybe the name is not the most, it's not even the official name, actually. It's like a pop feminism version of the name, but hegemonic masculinity is what sociologists call it. When we're talking about these sort of male behaviors that are about dominance and 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 violence and aggression and shame and all of those things, they're, they're not about testosterone, actually. And I think that that's the thing about the environment. The environment is so powerful and it's so deep and so unconscious that sometimes it's hard to see what's happening until you know someone points it out to us. And I think that's that's what I tried to do with the book. So going, I know we were just touching on earlier about safety because something that just came to mind was, do you also think that uh, to a degree, women are the way they are due to how men behave in the world? Of course. Yeah. I mean, because, I, I, why not? Because <laughs> like, it was interesting because um, safety has been, it's like all of a sudden it's come to my attention, just the safety of women. I don't know if it's because it's in the media so much, but yesterday my wife and I were walking to dinner and uh, this gentleman who clearly looked like he, he was, he, you know, he does a lot of drugs, he's homeless, etc. And I heard him shouting at a man just in front of us. And then I saw him kick him. And in that moment, instinctively, I wanted to go out and help the gentleman who had been kicked. And then I thought to myself, A, I don't know what he's on. And B, he can just overpower me. It's just the simple math of it all. Um, and so it made me think, well, here I am wanting to stand up for it. But at the same time, I just don't have the physical power for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, obviously, some women might feel like they do have the physical power for it. So I think there's obvious that's obviously an individual question. But I think the general milieu of feeling unsafe in the world um, around men, because men commit the vast majority of violence, and of course, um, violence against women is almost always and exclusively done by men. There are women who are violent against other women, but that's rare. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a normal and natural response to, to want to, you know, insulate yourself as much as possible and protect yourself from people who, you know, for most women are physically more powerful than them and who more importantly are more likely to cause them harm. Like, you know, if most men, if most experience experiences between men and women didn't involve violence and it was a very rare thing indeed that there was ever any violence at the hands of men, I think most women wouldn't be afraid regardless of how powerful men were. You know, I think the fact is we are living in a culture where men commit violent acts against women and a natural response to that is to, to want to keep yourself safe from that. And that was a big thing I, I, I did notice, you know, I was very defiantly, maybe because I looked more masculine before my transition, I was very defiantly the person who, was like, I'm going to walk home late at night. I don't even care, like, you know, what people say, Um, which is actually probably why I got mugged and almost died in terms of, you know, that was a different issue. But like before my transition, I um, was in a really crazy mugging situation um, that actually happened because I was like, I am not going to take a cab home. That's, you know, I shouldn't have to do that, you know? And uh, anyway, and so like, that was my, always my attitude. But now when I walk around at night, I don't feel any fear whatsoever unless, you know, I'm in a truly, you know, like in New York, it's like, if you're on a silent street, that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> so, you can, I, I've lived there and it's like, you can go four yeah. blocks the wrong way and you're like, where am I? So right. on, like on a simple note with the getting home, because it's something like if my wife, she's like, I'll walk home. And I was like, no, I'd rather, you know, you get an Uber kind of thing. Now that you yeah. feel more safe, but what about when, you know, you, you know, your wife is going to be coming home. Do you go, Hey darling, you should probably get a taxi or are you like, Oh, you know, like how do you navigate that situation going from one to the other? She, she actually is much more, she's very cautious about this stuff. So yeah. I think she's very, 
she's um, someone who's lived all over the world and has had to learn by herself and has had to learn how to assess quickly if she's in a dangerous situation. So I worry so much less about her, honestly, about her walking home at night because that she's totally probably has an overabundance of caution and which is great. Um, I mean, it's not great. It's, it's not liberating for her, but it's, you know, I don't worry about her. I worry more that she'll end up in, you know, she, she's often in, in situations where, you know, she's in like the developing world working for a nonprofit and like she, you know, got attacked by a mob recently, you know, for oh, example. Wow. Uh, so like, I, I mean, she was part of a group that was attacked by a mob. So um, that was just like part of, you know, that was just part of her job. And, and so that sort of thing happens, but that's not a specifically gendered issue. That's more of a, um, you know, the kind of work she does issue. Uh, gotcha. yeah. <laughs> and how did you find going from feeling, because I know in your book you write, I went from feeling threatened to being a threat. Um, and you have an example about when you when you go jogging. Yeah. So I think, you know, so first I realized that I was safe. And I also realized, you know, the jogging, I'll tell you, I'll tell the jogging story, but like, it's not just jogging. It's like if I'm on the street at night mm. and there's just one other person and it's a woman, I learned a long time ago to like cross to the other side of the street because I can, uh, to your point about feeling unsafe, it's like, yeah. I don't want to make someone feel unsafe. They don't know who I am. And yeah, is that like, I wish there was some way to telegraph who I was, but like, yeah, you're like it's okay. It's not, it's not going to be me. I will keep you yeah. safe. But I think most men, you know, I think most men feel like they don't, shouldn't have to like cross the street, you know, that they're, they're a good guy. So therefore like, what's the problem? And it's like, mm. you know, as long as I live in a world where there's, disproportionate, you know, violence against women, like I should cross the street. Why should I make her uncomfortable? So I don't have to feel uncomfortable, you know, yeah. about the world we live in. Um, and the jogging story is sort of similar. It's like I was training for the fight and I had to run a lot. And like, uh, and there was just one day where I was running on the river and it was like, maybe it was either early morning or early evening. I can't remember, but it was dark ish. And, um, and I was like running and not paying attention. And I was just, and this was a situation where I was alone. I realized like with a woman who like sort of startled as I like came up behind her and it was wild for me because I had been like similarly I'd been attacked from behind when I was mugged and I sort of sensed in her body like oh my god she thinks she's having a fear response like this person something's coming up, up, up like up behind me quickly um and I don't know what what's going to happen and I I just felt her fear and it was really upsetting and so I sort of slowed down and like let her get ahead of me. And I realized that like, I, you know, I wouldn't do that again because I don't want to make someone uncomfortable. So now I like, you know, I do the like, it's so dorky, but I'll just be like, on your right, you know, like uh, try to just like communicate, like I'm a runner, like I'm behind you, I'm jogging, like uh, we're, in the, we're, we're jogging together. It's so interesting though, because like I said, when I read that bit and I thought to myself, oh my God, yeah, that is exactly it. And, you know, yesterday I was speaking with a girlfriend and she literally was saying, she goes, I just don't understand if it's because now it's in the media all the time or if I've become more cognitively aware of it. She's like, but I have these moments where I'm terrified for my safety and, and it's just that realization of the privilege of, as a man, you are more like, you're just, you know, you're safer when you're walking the streets and all those little nuances. And I remember I was like listening to your book as I was walking the other day. And all of a sudden I noticed myself in a park with just a man and I was like, oh, I'm going to hurry forward. And I thought, ah, oh, it's these little things that are just so yeah. just shit, really. Like it's yeah. just, it's just crap, you know? Yeah. It sucks. And like, you know, I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I've experienced 
a fair amount of trauma. And I think maybe having had that intimate experience with trauma, which I believe um, most women and I mean, just by being in the world, most women are experiencing these sort of micro traumas like all yeah. the time. And so are trans people and so are people of color. And like, there's, you know, I have, I'm very attuned to it because I have had, you know, intimate trauma within my family. And like, I had this near death. You have experience. higher empathy around it all. Maybe. And, or, I think that it's that I myself have, yes, it's, I do have higher empathy, but because I know it's because I'm aware of it in myself, I have the mm -hmm. trauma response too. If a man comes up behind me and is running, I have a feeling of like, oh shit. And, and because I got attacked that way, you know? So to me, it's like, this is a, it's not hard to understand why if I'm having that response, the woman who's I'm running up behind <laughs> is having the same feeling, you know, it's like, of course, like we're in these traumas together. And I think just having some sensitivity about it is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. Um, going into toxic masculinity, because I, as I was initially researching and constructing our interview, I was like, oh, it's going to be so interesting to hear you shed light on the privileges of men and all these other aspects. And then as I dug deeper, I really started to find myself becoming empathetic in terms of socialization of boys to men and yeah. then how that toxic masculinity then can also lead to higher rates of suicide and drug usage. Um, but where I would love to start before we really dive into it is you share a differentiation of uh, a definition of to be a man. And the Danish version is to be a man is to not be a boy. The Americanized version is to be a man is to not be a woman. And I would yeah. love if you could expand a little bit on that for my listeners so they can understand that notion. Yeah, so there was a paper in, um, I think it was the study of men and masculinities that I found by this researcher, Sarah DiMuccio, who um, had, she had like, you know, I ended up talking to her for the book. She is marrying a Danish man and she had spent time in, you know, in Denmark and had like, in, I think in grad school or undergrad, and so I'd really gotten to know that culture. And so she got interested in gender from this perspective because she noticed how differently men in Denmark were versus men in America. She's from like the South, I think from Texas. So, so when she was doing this um, qualitative study, like that was where she wanted to sort of look into like, well, what, what are the constructions of masculinity in Denmark versus the constructions of masculinity in America? So that's what she asked the men. She said, what's the opposite of being um, a man? And they said in, in the Danish version of that was being a boy. So basically, they saw manhood as adulthood. Um, and for American men, the answer was uh, the opposite of being a man was to be a woman. So therefore, to be a man, you have to not be a woman. And that really, I think, is a potent metaphor for like what the idea of toxic masculinity is, which is just basically that we enculture boys to reject anything we've assigned the label feminine to, which is... I mean, not inherently feminine, of course, because nothing is truly inherently feminine, but we, you know, ideas around empathy, um, around uh, intimacy, around um, like cooperation and uh, connection and, and things that are about, you know, just normal human connection. Um, uh, when we socialize boys out of those things, because, you know, the, the way that the reason that's happening is because they're trying to become men. And for mm -hmm. them, the idea in America of becoming a man is not being a woman. And so that's so deeply rooted in our understanding that it not only does that define what masculinity means for, for those boys, but also the sort of really intense rejection of the feminine also like, you know, filters right into sexism and misogyny and all of those homophobia, um, all of those related issues. 
it's almost like you take something so big and abstract and they're trying to simplify it into something so like this is what a man is and then yeah. the idea of proving yourself to be a man whereas i always kind of more look at it as around like an energy like i always think that some of the men that i get along uh, best with in my life they have they embrace what i say is they embrace their feminine energy mm-hmm. and then it and it just makes a more fluid transition and conversation together versus anyone trying to prove to me that they are a macho man per se Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I always think like beware a binary, you know, if there's a binary, there's a power dynamic and most most things on this planet are not binary, you know, besides what? like COVID. I just I would no, I would just love so because the other aspect that I realized when I was um researching all of this was around languaging and labels and understandings and when I asked a lot of my friends, "Hey, do you know the difference between this and that?" um the terminology when it comes to either the transgender community or the queer community or any of those bits or i didn't even know what like a cis female is that correct is that how i'm using it yeah uh-huh but I, I i never understood that they like as i was reading your writings i thought what is that and so i, I went and looked at it and i uh-huh. started to realize there are so many different ways and also if you don't understand or know then you should say they or them or ask for their pronouns and i would love if you could just share a little bit on that before we keep diving into masculinity because i think from who i've spoken to they don't understand so therefore they don't want to say anything incorrectly because they don't want to embarrass themselves or offend right well just to be clear when i'm talking about the binary i'm talking about the regular binary that we all know male female man yeah. woman um so beware anything where there's like a very clear and radicalized sort of separation between things where if you're not this or that if you're not that you're this and i think that like you're saying about masculine energy and feminine energy you don't need to be trans at all to feel like you have a feminine side or a masculine side or whatever however you want to frame that to yourself i think that there's a healthiness to having a, a wholeness to your yep. personhood completely agree common and i think everyone has a gender men have a gender women have a gender you know people who I don't I don't identify as male or female have a gender and I think in some ways often trans people particularly but also women are sort of often um women who are not trans are often sort of generally held up as like the people who have gender whereas men don't and I think it's a disservice to to think of gender as something that's sort of specific to any group of people because we all have a gender identity mm-hmm. um so around language I don't know I'm not a um I I mean I guess we can talk about specific terms. I I I don't know how I don't know what people are confused about that you want to chat through. I'm not a like language purist or anything and I also think it's always changing and there's so okay. many ways to think about <laughs> yeah. Okay, like, no, so cuz that was the thing. That was so if if for example someone used the incorrect terminology, um I know some people or from what I've read some people do get like highly offended by it, but it's kind of the for me I was like, well if I don't if I conceptually understand but I'm trying to get better at it, um where is the fine line of like hey there's just a there's just a miscommunication of how I should be communicating for uh, that specific person i guess you could say so when you say you're not yeah. a language purist is that just if someone gets it wrong you understand that i think that my i think that when people are reactionary and upset about language my read on that is a deeper issue of feeling like my dignity as a human being is generally not being respected and this is just like one way where it's showing up and i think for trans people um you know i don't want to speak for other people but but i'll say for myself like maybe because i've been involved in media for so long and i've been part of like i hope it feels like a change in conversation about you know trans people that's about our dignity and our humanity i've always been interested in like who tells the story about who trans people are and so when i first got involved in media um well I, 
not when I first got involved, but when I first started after I transitioned, when I first got involved as a trans person in media, um, I really got interested in like the idea of being born in the wrong body and where mm -hmm. that story even came from, because it's not how I feel. And yeah, uh, I remember hearing that. Yeah. And so, so for me, like, and, and, you know, don't want to get into a big backstory with that, but just FYI, <laughs> um, some trans people really, re you know, respond to that. It resonates for them. My particular take is that, you know, I think it's a consumable narrative that makes sense for people who aren't trans and it positions mm -hmm. us as these people who are alien and different and need to be, need to be understood and sort of by its nature, gender dysphoria is something that if you don't experience it, you're never going to understand it. Yeah. Just like if you're not a person of color, you're not going to know what it's like. Yeah. I think this need to understand is a, is a, um, it's a way people, um, have a guard against empathy, you know, because actually I think people can understand what it's like to be trans. It's like, it's like having, you know, in terms of an actual transition, it's like any time you've had to radically change something about yourself that's been hard and scary and surprising, like you can, you can flex an empathetic muscle and understand what that's like. And yeah, you can't understand the exact details around the gender stuff because you're not transgender. So like, yeah. there's nothing to really like talk about there. So anyway, so I think language stuff when it comes up, um, I think that people who get frustrated by that, it's what they're really saying is like, I really want to be seen as a human being. And like, I don't know how to make sure that you're treating me not like a specimen or a, you know, a curiosity and mm -hmm. I'm not feeling seen in this way. And, and I think most trans people have families and friends who don't always say things the right way, but who they trust and, and interact with and who they, they see the good intentions and they like do learning together. And I think, um, for me personally, like, this is just not where I get hung up. Like, I'm kind of like, in fact, actually, when I do events, my thing is like, um, for questions and answers, because I love questions and answers. I just say, like, anything you ask me, um, the only role is like, anything you ask me, uh, I can ask you back. So gotcha. people, okay. yeah, ask me a lot of interesting questions. And, and sometimes if that's just a, a guard against like weird anatomical questions or things. Stupid that are just questions. Not, not appropriate that you would never ask a person you've somehow gotten the idea from media that it's okay to ask trans people, but you would never yourself entertain that question. And actually, you know, people rarely ask things that are offensive, but I think for that reason, they just think for a second. So around language, like, yeah, I mean, I think I'm pretty up to date on all of that stuff, but I think if the fear is like, I want to talk about this, but I'm worried I'll say the wrong thing. You know, actually men say that a lot too about feminism and about women and about talking about, you know, me too. And I think it's a similar impulse of like, the deeper question maybe to ask is like, are you really genuinely afraid you'll say the wrong thing? Or are you afraid that you're not informed enough or you're not like, you haven't looked at yourself enough. You haven't yeah. like thought enough about this issue. And you're afraid that you'll say something that's that you actually do have prejudices and, and ideas that are maybe problematic, but you don't know how to like address them. And you're like, I don't want to process it with this other person, but I actually don't know how to, how to educate myself. I think that's maybe the deeper fear that's such a good but, that's such a good way to actually um yeah. articulate that and maybe the next time a friend says that to me i'll be like do you have a prejudice that we should work through like you know yeah um, seriously like what is it you're afraid of really yeah and, and actually truly for me like if someone said to me um and which people say all the time uh i want to talk to you about this but i'm afraid i'm going to say the wrong words i Got say it. you know it's okay like let's talk about it but i will I will let you know if you're saying things that are hurting my feelings or bothering me and, you know, and I'm going to push you on those things. And then it's like, we're having a conversation where we're both vulnerable yeah. versus like, 
let me just ask or say anything I'm feeling or thinking. And yeah, let me done. get everything off my chest. Yes. And let me ask you a lot of invasive questions about yourself because I feel like I should know, you know, yeah. and I don't know how to Google it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, at, speaking of, uh, I kind of want to, I really want to talk about the faux pas because it's two things that you raised in two of your articles, but um, touching on the Me Too movement, uh, as you just said, it's really obviously made waves by forming a collective voice for women um, who are just really saying no more. But what are your thoughts by the response of some who are also like, it's not all men and he's a good man and the differentiation and all of a sudden everyone's like, I never did anything. It wasn't me. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really, um, Niobe way an NYU psychologist I've spoken to quite a bit. She's a developmental psychologist um, who helped me really understand boyhood. She studied friendships between boys and is really brilliant she had a really great way of framing this like good man bad man thing you know where Mm -hmm. she said like you know it's like like this idea of the good man is fundamentally troubling because if there's a you know if there's a good man there has to be a bad man um so instead of asking ourselves like you know am i a good man a better question would be how am i maintaining the status quo and i think that that's really actually to the benefit of men to have some latitude around Mm -hmm. like in the same way we're talking about people who aren't trans thinking about trans people why would you sort of spontaneously have this knowledge and information and thoughtfulness and sensitivity when you're also in a culture where it's really normal to be transphobic like there's it's probably unlikely that you've just somehow not internalized any of that and i think for men if we stop thinking of them as good and bad and start thinking and i'm talking of course about people whose behavior has been um, generally, you know, legal, um, appropriate, uh, whatever, but who like maybe are wondering like, you know, have I ever said or done anything that has made a woman uncomfortable? Like, is there some way that I've internalized like sexism in a way that's problematic? Like, I think if you just say, well, I'm a good man, so I don't have to think about that. Yeah. Like you're not doing any favors to anyone in your life or yourself. So that idea of like, how am I maintaining the status quo? That's, you know, if you don't like the status quo, if you're a man who thinks that the status quo is, you know, problematic and that we live in an unequal world and you actually want to do something about it, that's a place you can start and and start asking yourself and other people in your life that question and start answering it. And I think that that's that's more helpful than um, dividing the world into good and bad men, uh, which is, as we've seen over and over again, we'll call someone a good man and then almost inevitably there will be, you know, some sort of fallout and it'll turn out they're, quote, a bad man. Uh, instead. And it's like, you know, when will we learn to stop (laughs) doing this? Uh, Um, A really interesting uh, thing I watched with Justin Baldoni, his Man Enough Facebook series. And uh the question I loved was how, as they were all sitting around, they were saying, it's not for women to change what's going on. It's for men to not, you know, participate in the bystander effect and actually be the ones to call each other out. And Mm -hmm. so even as I've been doing this podcast and as I'm speaking to either male friends or just men in general, as I'll start asking them and I ask them about their participation in the bystander effect. And some do say, oh, you know, it depends on the situation. And then um, recently uh, a gentleman I met was like, no, I grew up with a single mother and two sisters. I call that shit out immediately. And I was Uh like, interesting about how what you grew up with also teaches you about how men and women should and should not allow each other to be treated. For sure. But I also think there's a real lack of education around like, how this all of this is hurting men you know and i think that maybe it's they're starting to be a conversation but if it's all framed around i mean definitely sexism hurts women obviously that's like a obvious issue Mm. but we've been a very long time where men haven't chosen not to like 
engage with changing the world because like they've just felt like the benefits of the world and i and i especially mean white men and i think what you know part of a really big part of my own process was like realizing that this wasn't just altruistic like i'm not just trying to make the world better for women i'm specifically feeling like the man box and the ways in which i've been taught that i have to behave as a man in this world is it's not worth the price i've paid you know what i mean yeah. like i'm not i didn't go through all this so that i could come out the other side and then have a new set of restrictions like you know That's i don't want to be a non-liberated person like as a trans man and i think that maybe you know, it seems like younger men especially are really like feeling aware of this. And I think that that's sort of my pitch to, to men who are just starting to realize that they have a gender is like, do you truly believe that what you learned about being a man, which boys universally learn, at least in the US, according to research about like men are supposed to be dominant, men are not supposed to have feelings, men are supposed to, um, you know, um, be aggressive, like all of these things that that boys learn about what being a man means, they, they're they're fundamentally about not like about losing part of your humanity. Mm-hmm. And then if you're lucky over time, maybe you recover some of that, but if you don't do it consciously, like, you know, you're still sort of in this constant relationship with like being quote, a real man, which yeah. is an possible moving target. So I think like, yeah, the bystander effect is really important, but within the context, I think for men, you know, not just around being a more thoughtful person as a son or a husband or a brother or whatever, you know, it's about like, following your own values like do you really want to be in a world where it's okay for men to say things like that to women and also to each other and to be policing you and telling you what you need to be in order to be quote real like is that is that actually something you want to co-sign from everything you've learned about masculinity how do you feel that we train boys to be better men almost so we don't need another woman's movement you know what i mean like from what you've seen all over the world and all the research that you've undertaken what do you think are small changes that could be made or i think a small change that could be made is parents which mm-hmm. parents hate this when i say it but like i usually when i do it to, speaking event there's always a parent of a son who says like what can i do for my son um like you know what is it gender neutral parenting is it like you know what what do we need to do to like change this like is it giving how do you wear pink like how do i help uh and i <laughs> think that, you know all of those things like obviously the environment you raise your children in really matters but also like you know i feel lucky that i grew up with a mom who questioned gender norms like she was really accepting of me i think in a way that most parents maybe wouldn't have been because she herself had been a person who was a she was a very feminine woman you know in sort of classic aesthetic sense but she she her work and her life was often about coming up against the gender norm and pushing through it and saying, you know, why can't I be a scientist? Like, why can't I work at General Electric? Why can't I be the only woman in the room? So she really modeled to me, like, just because someone tells you that gender is this way doesn't mean you have to behave it but in this way, but also you can have a complicated relationship. Like you can wear, you know, for my mom, it's like she wore dresses, she wore perfume, she liked cooking. Like she was, she was a mix of things and she had a, complicated and like engaged relationship with her gender and i think that with parents like if we you know a long time ago i think we learned how to do that for girls like because of like patriarchy it was like you can be a tomboy you know that that was more acceptable because that's how our culture works but i think the same needs to be done for boys like you know you can be who you are and not just i'm not just saying that to you i'm modeling it myself okay. um, as a parent you know I'm showing you what it's like to engage with my with gender identity as a real thing. I, I mean, I think modeling that and then truly being an accepting 
you know, person who loves your kid no matter what. I, I really think that that's like the first intervention, you know, is the one that happens at home. I mean, obviously there's school and culture and all these other bigger things, but in terms of like what biggest, what big impact can like one person have? Like if you have a family, you can have a huge impact on how your kid perceives the stuff, but it won't just be through you buying toys that are gender neutral, you know? It'll be mm -hmm. through you showing them how to engage with this idea of gender. And you, by the way, also race. <laughs> yeah, well, no, and that's the interesting thing. And I find that uh, a friend once put up a quote on Facebook and it was one of those, you know, I hope my child is kind and nice. And my wife is someone who loves to just challenge or debate ethical things in, in a range of different spectrums. And she was like, well, the question really is, are you the one also teaching them about all the other aspects and what may be seen as the other and then understanding and teaching your child to be kind to that child if they are being bullied or, but everyone just wants them to kind of be like, oh, and then, you know, my child's the miracle kid. Right, right. Yeah, it's like, I think critical thinking is like, it's sort of like what we started with, you know, but like when I think all of us, including children, need to ask questions about power, you know, like when you see something and someone tells you that this is this way, you know, the first, I think the first question should be like, well, why is it this way? Who benefits from it being this way? Who is hurt from it being this way? Like, why are, you know, why is it that girls have to do this and boys have to do this? Like, how did it start? Like, once people start asking questions about anything, you know, you start realizing, like, there's always somebody who's benefiting from whatever it is that we're doing. And if it, what we're doing lines up with your values, that's fine. Like, you know, you might say, well, I feel comfortable with this. And, you know, yeah, these people are benefiting, but this benefit is actually okay. And no one is truly being harmed. But you might find that, like, actually your values are, you know, are offended by what is happening that you're being asked to do. And I think like teaching ourselves and our kids how to like navigate that is sort of the work of being a human being. I have, because I know we're literally running over time now, I just want to say thank you so much. And before I ask my final question, uh, where can everyone find you and read more about your story? Oh, well, my website is thomaspagemcbee.com, but I'm also on both Twitter and Instagram with my full name there. Uh, and of course, you can always buy my book on wherever you buy books. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to link everything up because I do think everyone should read about, read your articles and read your books uh, because it is so insightful. And as you've really challenged me on this uh during this interview, it really makes you self-reflect. And then I think that small ripple effect will be the thing that continues to promote change. Um, yeah. So my final question, you're standing in front of a room of 10,000 people and you're able to offer one piece of advice. What would you say? Ask questions. I think just always ask a question. That's like what I've, I have learned is the only way to, you know, if you're stuck, ask a question. You always have a question. There's always something you're wondering. There's something you're curious about. And if you don't know what to do next, just ask the first thing that comes to mind and there'll be a way out from there. Thank you so very much, Thomas. I have appreciated this endlessly. Me too. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Modern Women. You can listen to all of our episodes over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. If you're not already subscribed, please do click that subscribe button now so you don't miss any episodes that come out each week. If you enjoyed this podcast or you took something away from it, taking two minutes to leave a five-star review or post a story review on Instagram and tag me in it so that we can continue to share these incredible stories with more women who need to hear this message. Original music by Chunky Love and produced by Podpaste. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.